Father, we've all come from such different experiences this week, and you've made each of us very different. We're grateful for those differences. Thank you that we don't all think alike, and thank you, Father, that we are better for that. We want to have the mind of Christ, and we know that only as we come together as the body of Christ can we possibly experience the breadth of your heart and your mind. And so we pray this morning for a spirit of grace among us. We pray for a spirit of grace in this land. Lord, we are a rebellious, angry, contentious people. And we need the heart and mind of Christ. And so we pray for that this morning, that no matter what experiences we have with each other, no matter what baggage we come with this morning, that Christ would dominate all of it. And that he will be our life, our hope, and that source of truth that we so desperately need in this day. So we look to you this morning, Lord. I ask that you will particularly guard my thoughts and words. And I pray that if anything I say is offensive outside of the offense of the gospel, that you will give to this congregation a spirit of forgiveness and grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Andrew said, we're in, a, we're in a short series. It may run more than two weeks. It may actually go three or four here. But we're in a short series on what it means to really be a Christian citizen, a good Christian citizen. And that is a, that is a topic that could assume hours and hours of study of the Word of God. And I'm trying to condense it down into, you know, 30, 40-minute segments here that we can kind of chew on. Last week, as Andrew said, we dealt with the dual citizenship that we have. And our primary and overriding citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to reinforce that again this morning. That kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is to rule and be the law for all of us, regardless of whatever kingdom we're living in on the face of this earth. And we are determined first and and foremost by our relationship with Christ, not our political associations, not our beliefs about politics or economics or any number of things. Scripture is really clear that we are to live as foreigners and aliens in this world, living out righteously the life of Christ, wherever God places us in this world. So our dominant citizenship is not any nation in this world. It is always the life of Christ. And my primary calling as pastor is to lead you to Jesus Christ, to trust him for forgiveness of your sins, to treasure him above everything in life, and to live out your love for him in every part of your life, including your political life. That's difficult, especially today. Now, I share the concern of many pastors that our gospel witness has been compromised, especially among the younger generation, when we fail to speak against the moral failures of public officials of both parties. Both parties have imperfect people. We will never find what we long for in the perfection of Christ in any political party anywhere on the face of this earth. So when push comes to shove, and earthly governments either prohibit or punish us from doing what God says we should do, or they demand that we do something that God says we should not, which kingdom do we obey? God's kingdom. Without question. This is why governments around the world and throughout human history have persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. They want to lay exclusive claim to citizenship over our lives. And they do not and never will understand that we belong first to a different kingdom. 
And their failure to recognize divine law and divine, and the divine lawgiver puts them in direct conflict with the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, we should always have a feeling of foreignness and a deep homesick-like heart longing for the kingdom of heaven, right? And our encounters with things like injustice and suffering and hunger and poverty, you name it, all of this is not like heaven that we long for. And it should serve to remind us every time we encounter it that this is not our home. Those things serve to point us to our better home. And every time we're frustrated by them, we should say, thank God this is not my final home. Now today, we're going to focus upon our biblical roles and rights and responsibilities when it comes to earthly citizenship. We talked about heavenly citizenship last week. I'm going to talk about earthly citizenship from a biblical perspective today. Whatever country or nation you find yourself in at whatever point in your life, and my wife and I, you know, we've lived in many different countries, and each time you move to a different country, you have to adjust to what that governing nation is. Independence, the idea that all men are created equal, does not mean that all nations are created equal. As such, there is a vast difference between various nations in in terms of types of governments, in terms of their rulers, in terms of their laws, in terms of the responses and actions of God's people to those laws. And determining what is right citizenship in any given country at any given time requires two very fundamental things. Number one, what is the responsibility of every Christian towards every government? Every government, regardless of the kind of government that it is. And number two, what is the proper role of that government over people? And when do governments cease to have the blessing of God on them and become illegitimate in terms of their God-given role. And I just interject here. There are three different spheres that God has uh, placed government into, or at least a governing of mankind. There's the sphere of the family, which is the most fundamental. And, and parents must govern their family. Okay. Then there's the sphere uh, of government. And that has to do with every person on the planet has to live with that in at every given country. And then there's the sphere of the church. And that has to do with every believer. So we are responsible to authority in each of those three spheres, no matter where we are, no matter what time uh, in history it appears. So what's the, here's the question. Um, what is the responsibility of every Christian towards every government? I mean, what's the minimum bar behavior for Christians in relationship to government. What's the proper role of government is the other side of that question, over people. And to know the answer to either of those questions requires that we know what the Bible says about citizenship on earth as well as in heaven. It demands, in essence, a theology of citizenship. And any biblical theology of citizenship has to acknowledge the following things. And if you're taking notes, you're going to be scribbling fast today. Okay, I guarantee you. Number one, we are to do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Everything we do, and that includes our political life. If you say, well, I don't do politics. No, you've just made a political statement. And you've just made a decision about how you're going to do politics. So don't tell me you're not going to do politics. Not in this country. Everybody is doing politics. Okay? So, number one... Everything you do, including politics, is to be the glory of God. Number two, God cares about secular government leaders. We have that from the Old Testament to the New. We have, for instance, uh, the passage I'd point you to that is just classic is Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. And Daniel just, he confronts the king, a pagan king there. And he says, you know, you're put here to rule righteously, even though you're a pagan. And so... So God cares what happens about secular government. Number three, I'm responsible to preach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts I like. Okay? And that comes from Paul's statement in Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 27. So preaching about civil government 
really, if I'm going to preach the entire counsel of God, it has to at some point include it. And I would say election time is a pretty legitimate time to do that. Okay? Uh, if the Bible is not relevant to the pressing political questions of our day, how are people to believe it is relevant to their lives? But trust me, it is very relevant. And finally, pastors throughout history, throughout the church, have preached about politics. This is nothing new. And I trust today that I'm not going to say anything about any individual. So, you know, don't come to me and say, you just supported that candidate. No, I didn't. I'm not talking about candidates. I'm talking about your mindset, my mindset, as, as we approach our government. So, let's start with the most fundamental question. How are we to determine what is a good citizen or a good government or a good law or a good ruler? Consider a few examples here. For instance, Marxist communism will say that a good citizen is one who teaches their children what about religion? Atheism. Atheism. That's what Marxist communism is founded on. It's founded on the belief that there is no power higher than the government. Okay? So, is that a good governmental system? Based on what? Based on God's law. God says a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay? So, it always has to go back to God's law. So, we can say, pretty confidently, Marxist communism is not a good system morally. All right? Now, there may be good elements to some of it. I don't know. We're not going to debate that. What about a monarchy? What does a monarchy say is the ultimate source of law in a country? The monarch. Is that biblical? No. Because the Word of God says the ultimate source of law is God himself. His nature, primarily, and then his expressions of his nature in the word of God. So, monarchy, that system, as a system, uh, is really flawed to say that the monarch is the ultimate source of law. Now, those are just two of many possible forms of government, and I want, I want to just have you think for just quickly a moment all the different kinds of government that exist across the face of the earth. Because this shows that we, we as Christians have to learn to live in a multiplicity of governments. Okay, So, uh, what are the possible for other forms of governments? Well, I'm going to group them into four simple categories, and then we're just going to jump on. Autocracies. What's the definition of an autocracy? It is that the power rests with one person. So, we just mentioned a kind of government. Is a monarchy an autocracy? Yes, it is. A, a strict monarchy is an autocracy. So is a dictatorship. Now, there are very efficient forms of government, but they probably are, are not the best biblical forms of government because they rest on flawed people rather than divine law. Okay. Second, oligarchy. An oligarchy says that power rests with a small group of people, not one, but a small group. And that power may be because of their wealth, it may be because of their birth, it may be because of their position, whatever. It's closely related to, on one hand, fascism... That, that would be the right-wing authoritarian rule. And on the other hand, communism, which is a left-wing authoritarian rule. But it's a group of people, whether it's the Politburo in the communist government, or whether it's uh, a cabinet in, in, I don't know, in, in, in a monarchy of some sort. Okay? Not a monarchy. That's a bad illustration. Um, so, autocracies, oligarchies, republics. Let's talk about republics. Republics say that power rests with the people through direct or democratic uh, elections, okay? Now, is that, strictly speaking, biblical? No. No, why? It doesn't doesn't depend on us. It should rest on God, not on our opinions, all right? And then there's a fourth one, which we'll call a theocracy. And a theocracy says that that is a system in which priests or mullahs or prophets or judges Rule in the name of God. Okay? Now, what, what is the most biblical form, or, or, or what could we say for the people of God? What was the earliest form of government? A theocracy. Right. Because when they came out of Egypt, what was the first thing that God gave them? Law. 
The first thing he gave to them was law that said, this is how you're to order public life. And who was responsible for administering that law among the people of God? The priest and Moses particularly. So you have the case where, you know, Moses, uh, talk about a jammed up court docket. Uh, he, he listened to all of the problems of several million people, right? And his father-in-law finally came to him and said, you're going to burn out, buddy, if you don't change the way you do this. And so you need to appoint, you know, kind of municipal courts around here. And so that's what he did. And only the, the toughest cases of the Supreme Court went to Moses, Okay. But Moses was not instituting his own ideas. Whose law was he trying to institute? God's. Okay? So, so he was responsible as the governor to institute the law of God. That's what we call a, a theocracy. And uh, have you ever heard of the, the Latin term lex rex? Anybody ever heard that? That was a title of a book written by a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Samuel Rutherford in 1644. It was translated from the Latin, Lex Rex, literally it means law king. Now remember, who was king during 1644? The king of England wasn't King James I, what was it, King James II or III, I think, at that point. Um... But he was writing as a minister against the the notion that the king was the law. And it was a play on words, that title, King Law. The king thought he was law. And and, uh, Rutherford was saying, no, the law is king, and it's God's law that is to be king. Okay, so he, he, and he got arrested for it, uh, and he almost lost his head for it. Because the king didn't, didn't like that idea. Now, Israel had a leadership by theocracy first. They didn't like that. They wanted to be like the rest of the world kingdoms. And so what did they choose next? Monarchy. Okay, they chose a monarchy next. And, uh, and they held with that pretty much for the rest of, of their existence until the modern state of Israel today. Here's the point. Any form of government can apparently be acceptable to God as long as it is under the law of God. Form does not dictate function according to God. Government is to function as an implementer of God's justice in the world. And when it fails to do so, which it often does, government at that moment or in that whole period ceases to be Government that God says, I can bless. So, did we answer the question, what is a good form of government? The answer, any form that is under the authority of God, that recognizes the authority of God. What then would be bad government? One that does not, that chooses to say, I'm, we're our own authority here. We are not under anybody else's authority, including God's. So let me ask the question, what's the purpose of government biblically? And I'll give you a quick answer to that. I think from start to finish, it is to protect human beings from our evil tendencies. It is to promote what we call, what the scripture calls justice. Now the question is, what is justice? Justice, I would contend, is the practice of God's truth in human relationships. Okay? So governments that support God's truth about humanity and human relationships will end up being good government. Government that violates God's truth about that will end up being bad government. Okay? This is why justice for the Christian should be far more important than any one of our rights. Whether it's voting rights or the right to free speech or the right to assembly. If the outworking of those rights does not reflect God's law, then those rights will always produce something that is against God. Let me give you an illustration of that. The most tragic current example, I think, uh, of this particular poor outworking of the justice of God in our nation has to do with the 1973 decision of the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade. And I'll tell you why I think that's such a critical decision. 
Roe v. Wade decided that there was a right to privacy for every woman in the country that trumped the right of a child to stay alive. Here's the critical point. Is there a right to privacy in God's word? We've got to always ask it and take it back to the word of God. Do you and I, does our right to privacy, no, there really isn't. God's word, in fact, keeps outing us all the time. It keeps pointing out our sin. It keeps telling us, you know, you got to change here. Is there a right to life in God's word? I would contend that there is. Because God consistently gives to government the authority to punish those who take the life of other people, the innocent life of other people. We're not talking about self-defense or things like that, and this gets into a whole other arena of civil life. But if the right to exist is not the primary right of every human being, then every single other right is meaningless. That's why God says, hey, wait a minute, this business of taking another human life is really, really big. Really big. That's why this particular court decision stands alone uh, from most other court decisions that we've had in the history of our government. But the next question is, um, if good government is to promote truth, God's truth, we, should ask, we could ask it this way. What is the good that we should all be seeking in our human relationships in, in government? In other words, what's the good that government should be seeking to spread across the land wherever it is? And as Christians, we know that good is defined first by the nature of God and second by the law of God. So, you know, when parents, uh, if your kids ask you, well, why should you do that? And parents say, because I said so. That's really... Uh, I mean, I get it. I've said that to my kids because that, that's a short answer, because I said so. But behind that, what if the parent is asking the child to do something evil? And they say, because I said so. What you're saying is, I want you as my child to conform to my evil nature. When God says, I want you to do something, it's not just because he said so. What is it because? It's his nature. Law is simply to be an expression of the nature of God. And so that's why when we look at the Old Testament law, that was the first expression to mankind. Of, I mean, one of the first. It was certainly the most ample expression, I should say, of the nature of God to a nation. Now, we may not agree with every component of the Old Testament and say, boy, am I glad I don't have to live up to that law. But every one of those laws still expresses the nature of God. And so when you say, well, I don't know what we should be doing today about uh, sexual morality. I would say, go to the Old Testament, read Leviticus, and it gets some pretty clear boundaries about what's acceptable sexuality or sex. Okay? And that's why, in our culture today, California just passed a law. That, de- that decriminalized, or at least lowered the criminalization of certain kinds of sexual activity outside of marriage with minors. And the Word of God says, at ah, time out, that's not a good boundary. And so, now, now do I advocate for every boundary to be law in America? That's another question. Okay? But, don't, God has not left us adrift about civil law. He gave us the Old Testament, to give us some really clear clues as to where we should be headed with our civil law. Um, Okay. So, just to recap quickly, government may, therefore, take many different forms, right? We can live under any kind of government, and it can still be good depending on how it views law and its relationship to the nature of God and the nature of mankind. And here's the second critical point. Our culture has jettisoned this idea that God's nature should have anything to do with our civil law. Okay, so we lost that point. We have also jettisoned the idea that God has something to tell us about how people actually are. What our nature is. 
what's good for us and what's not good for us. And so we have jettisoned, unfortunately, in America, the two most fundamental issues about governance. What is good law and what is the accurate nature of mankind? Because if you misunderstand either of those, you will end up uh, either with unchecked power in the government and thus corruption, or with deeply flawed attempts to create a utopia. A, did you hear me? A utopia. You'll think that we can get to utopia in this life. We cannot, said, says the scriptures. And, but that's what communism and Marxism and unfettered capitalism and much of socialism tries to do. It tries to say, hey, we can get there on our own. And God says, no, you won't. Because the nature of humanity is flawed and broken. And if you don't recognize that, you won't have good governance. Now, let's talk about what good earthly citizenship in any country of the world is to look like. What elements are required for you and me, no matter where we end up living? Here's number one. A good Christian citizen is a person preeminently committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ and living it out in every corner of their life. Nothing will consistently and more deeply and faithfully produce good citizens than that one fact. Nothing. But if you fail here, chances are you'll fail in all of the others. That doesn't mean that others are always going to appreciate our commitment to Christ. In fact, that they may hate it. Hitler hated Christians like Corey Ten Boom's family, right? Who hid Jews and believed that they were responsible as Christians to love every human being regardless of their race. And so they hid Jews during Nazi occupation and they paid for it by internment in, in concentration camps and the death of the entire family except for Corey Ten Boom. Go read the story. It's riveting. God will always condemn evil and reward good eternally. Temporally, we may not see it every time. But living like Christ will put you and me in the place where we can say, no matter how evil the government or the law, I stand and fall before God and I can live with that. And I can die with that if I have to. Now, Peter told us as to live as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they're going to see the life of Christ and glorify God someday. So now let's get to some other specifics. And I'm assuming that this is, is first in your life, that Jesus Christ is first above everything. Secondly, uh, In relationship to government, an attitude or spirit of submission to the government and respect for authority is always called for. 1 Peter chapter 2, you can see it there, verses 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor supreme or to the governors or to those sent to punish. And notice what they're sent to do, to punish those who do wrong, and commend those who do right. And this is the basis we've already talked about. This is the basis of legitimate government or illegitimate government. Legitimate government says, we're here to reward good and punish evil, and illegitimate government says, nope, we're here actually to punish good and reward evil. Although they may switch the terms. Okay, But we know based on the word of God that what they're doing, like Hitler, was... Rewarding evil and punishing good. So, an attitude of submission, no matter how much you may find yourself in conflict with a government, is always the case. Paul died in an attitude of submission to Rome. But he died appealing to the Constitution of Rome, which may, by which he was a citizen. So he used every legitimate... Uh, tool within the Roman government to appeal his case, and when the government finally said, no, we're done, we're finished with you, he said, well, my, hand, my life's in God's hands. I'm not, I'm, I'm not backing off of the gospel. Okay, third thing. This is what ever, we're all to do no matter where we are. We are to pray for our rulers. You'll get that from 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, Paul says, pray for rulers and authorities so that we can live peaceable and holy lives. Now, you may not be able to live a peaceable life under, let's say, a North Korea. But you can always live a holy life, right? 
So it, no government determines whether you live a holy life. But Paul says, pray for the government so that you can also live a peaceable life. Because he knows that we flourish in peace. Not in conflict, not in, not in persecution so much. What kind of rulers should we thus be asking God for? Godly rulers who value the peace of the people and who value holiness. Okay, that's, that's what we should be praying for. And, and I just want to tell you right now, I, I'm going to call for a day of prayer and fasting on November 1st, Monday next week, for our congregation at least. This is happening across the country. Why? Because the next day is election, and whoever God determines, and whatever we the people determine, will become the next leaders of our nation who will influence the church dramatically. Okay, So prayer is always in order. Fourth, Paying taxes is always in order. Anybody here love to pay taxes? No. Okay, and we thankfully get to choose, hopefully, through our representatives, what taxes we have or don't have, but Christ made it really clear, clear in Matthew 22, you got to pay your taxes. You may not like it, but you got to pay them. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's clear, no matter what country you're in. Fifth, and here's where I want to spend the rest of the morning, We as believers, no matter what country we're living in, are called to be good stewards of whatever form of government God has placed you under. Good stewardship. Here is where our paths may diverge in some ways from our brothers and sisters living in other countries. What is required of us in the United States of America is going to be more than what is required of our brethren in China, Iran, Myanmar, Vietnam, Russia, just about any other country in the world. Why do I say that? If you go to the, and we won't read the text today, but I encourage you to go and read it sometime today or this week. The parable of the, of the bags of gold, as the New International says, or the talents, as King James says, in Matthew chapter 25, where the king was going to leave and he, he left his kingdom in charge of his servants and he gave to one uh, five bags of gold to another three and to the other one, and you know the story, right? Okay. Two of the three were commended because they put that to work. One was not because he did what? He buried it. He had a false viewpoint about his master. He said, you know, you're a tough guy. I knew you'd come back, you'd, you'd require this back, and boy, I wasn't going to run any risks. And so here you go. And we're told that what happened to that servant? He lost what he had. Okay? There are billions of people in this world who would die, to li- and, and are dying, to live under our system. Right? What does that say to God's gift of this system to us as a people when we say, I'm just going to go bury it. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to engage in politics. I'm just not going to do anything with it. This is a stewardship issue that we cannot run from. It is one that you and I, as God's children, will answer for somehow. I don't don't think it's a stretch to apply this to our republic. We, in a republic... The people are the government. The people we elect are only temporary stewards of that government. You and I are the permanent stewards of the government here. That's why our founding fathers could could say, we the people. That's why Lincoln could say, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And so when you say, I'm not going to be involved in government, um, actually... You're abdicating. You're abdicating your God-given role in this government. Um, I'm going to... Okay, let me, let me jump to this. What does good stewardship of government look like in a democratic republic or a constitutional republic that you and I experience right now? Number one, I would say it looks like voting wisely. 97 million 
eligible Americans did not vote in 2016. That's 40% of the country that could have voted. And lest you think that evangelicals or Bible-believing Christians are alone, there were 6.6 million evangelicals who didn't vote. Just abdicated. What do you think is going to happen to that bag of gold called a, a constitutional republic if we keep doing this? God's going to say, done, you lose it. Sorry, gave you a chance. Let's say instead of being born in the United States in the 20th century, you'd been born in England in the 17th century. Instead of being born in middle-class parents in the 20th or 21st century, you were born to the royal family, the House of Stuart. Let's say you were James I. What would you be saying before God if you said, I don't want to be king. I don't like being born in the royal family. By the way, James I was the one who was responsible for giving us the King James Bible. Uh, he was no saint, trust me. He killed Christians. But he gave us the King James Bible. That, that ought to be a good reminder that no government official is ever all good. Okay? Um, what happens when somebody abdicates their responsibility or abdicates a monarchy? They lose the privilege and the attendant responsibilities, and they never get that opportunity back in their lifetime. I believe the first time this happened in at least modern history was with Edward VIII, who abdicated the English throne after one year of being king in 1937, just as World War II was unfolding, and he did so to to marry a divorced American woman. Actually, she wasn't divorced when they had a relationship initially, but then she got divorced, and then they married, and he had to abdicate the throne because the Church of England said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going for that. And so his younger brother, George VI, became king, and I can't remember the name of the movie. What's it? Where George VI, the guy had a stuttering problem that was oh so painful. And he had to be the voice of England during World War II. So what happens when we abdicate and say, I'm not interested in voting? And God says, you just abdicated your official position as the government of the United States. I, I, I don't see any way out of that. And I think God says, okay, don't use it, you will lose it. Don't value it, it'll be gone. So where's the application here? You have in your bulletin a website you can go to to register to vote. If you're not a registered voter and you're eligible, I think you've got to wrestle this one out with God, okay? Secondly, please educate yourself. Please don't just vote foolishly. Uh, and on that regard, we've also put another link in the bulletin there that you might want to go to to say, well, what do these candidates believe? And We Believe We Vote takes, I think, nine different major areas, everything from environment to, to uh, pro-life, and says, what does this candidate believe? What's their voting record? What have they told us? Okay, you can get that information there. And please vote biblically. Now, there are a multitude of issues that come to play when we exercise our vote. You may be deeply concerned about the, the prison system, about crime, about war, about taxes and money, or property rights, or economics, or defense, or greed, or envy, or covetousness. That all plays into how we vote. Talk about this with other believers. Debate it. Have tough conversations. Why are you voting for that person? We'll all be better for that, won't we? And I'm going to make a claim that may bother you even more than what I've already said. As a follower of Jesus, not all political issues are of equal moral impact. If you're passionate about, let's say, health care for all, that's great. But if that passion outweighs your passion for the right of every human to live, then health care really is insignificant in light of that particular issue, right? Because why talk about health care for a dead child? 
That's meaningless. We can only have a really good conversation about health care when the first priority is that we keep people alive. Right? Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up so that you can ask some questions because this is, I'm sure, provoked a ton of questions. Here's one question that I received last week that I'll just address. It's kind of a kickoff question here. Somebody said, how do I vote? One candidate is good for the country, in their opinion. Okay, good. But is not the best person. The other's bad for the country, but it's a better person. Okay? Here's my response. It depends on what you're voting for. If you're voting for the next pastor of Mosaic, then the character of that person better matter significantly to you. Okay? It really better matter. If, the, if, if you're voting for a high office in this country, that person's character matters. Trust me. Does it matter as much to 330 million people in this country and 6 billion people in other countries as their policies do? No. It doesn't. Because if their policies have clearly stated something that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God, and you say, I'm, I don't like that person, but I'm going to vote for them. I'm going to vote for the other guy because I don't like them. But the other guy's policies or the other woman's policies are clearly against the word of God. And this person's policy with very flawed character is closer to the word of God. And what are you left with? You have got to pray this through. And you have got to make your decision based on this. Okay? No, that's not an easy decision, is it? Because we know that, that people's character will influence the decisions they make. But we also know that what people have lived and breathed for for however long, and what they have actually implemented as policy over us, is probably the direction they're going to go in the future. Okay? So, another question. Fire away. I'm open. Start shooting at me. Michaela. Referendums and initiatives. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that uh, the referendum and initiative issue is something you you'll have to research via other channels. And I would say talk to people who you trust and ask them why they're voting against or for a particular referendum or initiative. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, I guess I'd, I'd leave it there. And on those candidate positions, even in We Believe We Vote, they, they kind of put this little funky, uh, I don't really like it, it's like a, it's like a gas tank m- meter. But underneath that, if you click more on the candidate, you'll find the specific positions. Okay, So you can see why they rank them a certain way. And that, to me, is more important. Okay, Good question. Did I kind of answer that? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another question. Yeah, Inga. And folks, this is coming from a couple uh, who were born in Germany. And Germany was forever changed. Forever. Because the majority of the church in Germany would not stand up when Hitler came to power. Okay? So, yeah. So this is not an academic theory kind of thing. This will change our lives. Thank you, Inga. Okay, any other question? Yeah, Dave. Great. If you start looking at the group, some of them 
Yeah, very good suggestion. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for doing that. Yes, please. What is truth? Yeah. And that's where you go to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And you go to prayer and and you ask the Lord, give me discernment between truth and error because we're all being fed a lot of that right now. Dean. change that. We are still given a constitutional uh, or democratic republic, and we still must use the mechanism to bring what, uh, the truth of God back into the public arena. Uh, and so I think that's what we can do. We can certainly do all the things I mentioned of praying and living in submission uh, and, and engaging in civil disobedience when we need to. That, that may become more important. I don't know. Yes, Sue. Listen to God. Yeah, very good. All right, uh, if you have further questions, I would love to get them. So email them to me. We'll deal with them next week. Uh, we'll, we'll call a special time of just kind of a roundtable discussion if you want, any of those things. Let me just close with this, this one thought. No one, including you and me, can separate their religious life and their spiritual values from their political life. Your political life is simply another arena in which you express what you really believe. And you may think you can avoid it, as we said, by saying, I'm not going to participate. That is an expression of what you believe. On June 6, 1944, some 160,000 Allied troops landed where? Normandy. It's what we know as D-Day. Now, thousands of them died that day. You know how many thousand would die in the next year in Europe alone to push back Nazism? 104,812 Americans were killed in that next year. A half a million Americans, 552, were casualties in some way in the next year. This is a parallel with our spiritual experience. Because a year later, in May, was VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. Okay? But there was one year in between there that was pure hell for everybody. That is akin to where you and I and the church has been living for 2,000 years. Christ established a beachhead. He took the bullet, he, he, he landed on earth and said, I'll do this because I know we're going to win this war. And he took the bullet, he triumphed over death, and now you and I are marching in that army until the day in which we celebrate victory when Christ returns. There will be casualties. There will be tough decisions to make. We will not do this perfectly. But do not leave the battlefield before God sends you home. Do not run away and build your own foxhole and just think you can hide there. Don't lose heart when there are temporary and temporal setbacks. 
don't think the war is lost just because the battle you're in is really fierce right now. Live as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and get ready to reign with him when he returns, when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, we're a bit shaken, frankly, by the responsibility you have placed in our hands. Of all the people in human history, we're one of the few who gets to choose our own leaders. And Lord, it is outright confusing at times. So we pray that your truth would cut through all the fog and somehow guide us as we try to be the government of this nation. We pray for wisdom. We pray for humility. Dear God, we are not a humble people. But you are humbling us. And so we submit to that process. And we pray that as long as we have opportunity to still be a part of this system, that you will please show us your truth. And please help us to make godly decisions. We pray for our leaders. Dear God, we pray for leaders that will value peace, both internationally and right at home. We pray for leaders who will bring peace to this land. And we pray for leaders that will value holiness and be holy in Christ. That would be our dream government, Lord. Filled with people who every day get up and ask you, Lord, how do I govern in holiness today? We pray for that. We plead with you for it. And we most of all ask you, Lord, that we the people would experience a spiritual awakening now. Not 20 years from now. Now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me close with a benediction from 2 Timothy chapter 2. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Go and please the Lord this week. God bless you.